It's a case dealing with lies, abuse, and a missing five-year-old boy in San Antonio in 2001, a story many have never forgotten. A mother and her boyfriend were at the center of the investigation, but it would take years for them to go to trial as prosecutors were forced to try the case with no body. This is South Texas Crime Stories, What Happened to Nicholas Plaza. In the summer of 2001, Nicholas Plaza led a rather normal life in San Antonio with his mother, Priscilla Ann Plaza. Everything would change for Nicholas when his mother started dating Ruben Zavala Jr. Eventually, Priscilla would move in with Ruben at his parents' home. That same year, at some point during the beginning of the school year, Priscilla and Ruben stopped taking Nicholas to school. And Priscilla's family, especially her mother, started to get concerned about Nicholas as she could never track him down, even calling police and child protective services to do welfare checks on him. She was eventually told that he was with his mother and there was no evidence that he was in any danger. CPS did eventually open an investigation and a worker went to visit the home and Zavala would lie to them and they were never able to make contact with Priscilla or Nicholas. It wasn't until November that CPS was finally able to make contact with Priscilla, but Nicholas was nowhere to be found. She said she was told by Zavala and his mother that CPS had picked him up and she hadn't seen him since October. In fact, October 23rd, 2001 was the last day anybody saw Nicholas alive. A missing persons report was then filed and a police investigation began. Tragic details would be revealed. According to court documents, it was discovered that Nicholas was severely sick from being tortured and sexually abused for months. Priscilla and Ruben both provided different stories of what happened. Priscilla said that Ruben would abuse her and Nicholas and wouldn't let her take him to the doctor. Ruben told police that he and Priscilla were both to blame for Nicholas's death and that he placed the boy's body in a garbage bin. A search of the area around the garbage bin and the landfill found nothing. With no body and only circumstantial evidence, charges were still filed against Priscilla and Ruben, both charged with injury to a child by omission. At this time, this case would be only the third case in state history where there was no body. Priscilla would end up taking a plea deal in exchange for 20 years and to testify against Zavala. Zavala's trial took place in 2007, six years after Nicholas disappeared. During the trial, more disturbing details were revealed. Priscilla said during testimony that Nicholas's injuries were so bad, he couldn't even walk. As for the defense, they put the blame on Priscilla, saying that she was with him when Nicholas died and Ruben was only helping her. The jury would find Ruben guilty, but during the punishment, it was revealed that Ruben was on the run and accused of kidnapping. The prosecution revealed the similarities between both cases. In the kidnapping case, Zavala was dating a woman with the baby. They also moved in with him, and eventually she would break up with him. When he asked to meet up with her to discuss some issues, he disappeared with her son. A voicemail was played in court of Zavala threatening to kill himself and the baby if she didn't move back in with him. The boy was eventually returned, but Zavala was on the run on that charge. While the state was seeking 99 years for Zavala, they came back with a 67-year sentence. This conviction finally giving Nicholas the justice he deserved. 
Erica, you spoke with our guy now, Dr. John Delatore, about this case because there are so many twists and turns with it that it kind of just blows your mind. It's all very disturbing to hear. And and it's it's almost like I feel like everybody failed Nicholas. He was failed in so many aspects of his little young life. And it's it's really interesting to hear what Dr. John Delatore says about this case and we had him on before like you said he's a you know he's a psychologist and he actually evaluates individuals who are sex offenders i spoke to him about sex offenders and why oftentimes we see cases where boyfriends or stepdads are the ones doing the abuse as part as part of my work i've assessed and treated sex offenders um i currently uh, evaluate individuals who may be designated as a sexually violent person. You know, when it comes to the likelihood that uh, someone is going to be abused and who that abuser is going to be, uh, what we see is that more often than not, the abuser is known to the person, whether they're an acquaintance or a family member. More than likely, it's going to be someone that's known to the family. Uh, if we break that down a little bit more, we're more likely to see uh, brothers to sisters, and we're most more likely going to see sort of this stepfather boyfriend kind of um, role to to a victim. Seeing a biological father, it does happen. I mean, obviously it happens, but in terms of the likelihood that's going to happen, it's kind of towards the bottom. So. Uh, it, it's one of these things where offenders need a, a justification, right? They need a rationalization as to why they're going to engage in a behavior that they know uh, other people are going to see as wrong, which is why they try to cover it up. Um, they, they need a reason to do it. And th th there's a compulsion that's associated with it. So once they get that compulsion to engage in the behavior, it starts with fantasizing and things like that. But once that compulsion is there, they need something sort of logically that they can say it's going to be OK to engage in this behavior with this person. And it's a lot easier when you can separate yourself uh, relationship wise, right, that if you think of yourself as being somehow just a tad bit distant from the person. It's a much easier justification to then engage in that behavior. So that's why we probably see that it's more likely to be someone just, you know, a boyfriend or a stepfather or something like that, that just that separation, it, it, it can, in the, in the offender's mind, it can justify that the behavior is okay in their mind. It is, um, it is interesting that he mentioned that there's kind of that degree of separation. And that's why, and I'm putting air quotes here, it's okay that they're doing this, even though by no means it's okay, but they have that degree of separation. So they're like, it's not my kid. Yeah. And, and while he said there are still cases that are out there of actual fathers doing this, it's just, they're not as many. And we see that all the time here. We see these cases come up, not just Nicholas's cases, but you know, in the past year, we've seen other cases where mom's boyfriend is always the one that's involved and it's, it's so infuriating. Like, I'm a mother and, and my kids, as most people know, I've adopted my kids through the foster care system. So I've dealt with some aspects of, you know, neglect and, and abuse that my kids had gone through. And I don't understand 
how anybody would allow this to happen, especially to their own children. Right. For mom, dad to let their partner just do something like this. It's disgusting. Yeah. And I never want to say that it's, you know, all completely mom's fault. I get sometimes they're in situations they can't help or they are, you know, completely just withdrawn for anything. They're really held hostage themselves almost. But I still feel that there's opportunities for them to to seek help and they're not taken. And I, I don't know if I could ever fully understand that. Um, and like I said, I don't want to put 100% blame on these mothers. But when your child is in pain and dying, what what is the point that you 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 stop this or seek help? And I was looking through in our website, ksat.com, we have some of the affidavits leaked on, uh, on links rather on some of these stories, or you can go back and read a lot of these timelines. And I think it was July, 2001, she moved in with Ruben. And then by October, this is what the end result was. It's just that the short time period is just so mind blowing. And the fact that we can't actually see him, we can't actually see Nicholas. Prosecutors don't actually have a body to prosecute with this case. Yeah. And it's very rare that you see cases like this go to trial. And it did. And and Dr. De La Torres speaks about how this works in a case and how this prosecution has to work in a case when there is no body. It's a curious thing, you know, you, you, we often hear the, the, the true crime idiom of no body, no crime. Uh, but the truth is, is that if there's enough circumstantial evidence, and, and I think, uh, I think the, the population itself is so used to direct evidence, right, from television shows like CSI and, and, and Criminal Minds and other things like that, audiences believe that, um, that all trials are built on direct evidence, you know, evidence that directly links the perpetrator, right, the defendant, to engaging in the offending behavior. But that's not true. Most often, uh, you're more likely to see circumstantial evidence. And so what it seems as though that the prosecutor's office was able to get enough emotional uh, testimony, they were able to get enough sort of circumstantial scientific testimony from uh, doctors and from uh, family members to say that, look, Nicholas was one way before Zavala came into his life. And Nicholas was completely different and now is missing after Zavala came into his life. So it's one of those things where if you put enough circumstantial evidence out there, it can lead a jury to saying, no, the defendant committed this crime beyond a reasonable doubt. I feel like, and I, and I love that you, you wrote this one the way that you did pointing out the significance of having this case actually prosecuted is one of the first in our state's history where prosecutors prosecuted without a body that's got to just add like he said that extra level of i mean intensity challenge in trying to prosecute a case like this i think you really have to reach a level of circumstantial evidence like you know dr delatory says and and also you really have to hit the jury with some emotional testimony and i think the fact that it's a child it it really hits differently and they also revealed multiple times, which we didn't go into details, what those injuries were to Nicholas, uh, because 
mom did reveal that through testimony and they were very graphic injuries. I mean, he couldn't even walk. That has to tell you a lot. Right. For a young child to have been hurt in that way and for prosecutors to really kind of tug at a jury's heartstrings, you have to know they have, they have something significant for mom to be revealing these details. Also in one of those affidavits I was reading, like, uh, Ruben in his, in his, uh, conversations with detectives, he was like, oh man, is this off the record or on the record? Like, I'll tell you something, but it's gotta be off the record. It was almost like it was a game to him. Exactly. And the, the detective kept saying, you know, I don't understand what you're asking. I read you your rights. You know what your rights are. If you're going to tell me, just tell me. Yeah, exactly. It was really interesting to see what the mindset of this indiv- individual was. Also, kudos to grandma, because she really was the one that kept pressing CPS, police. I can't find my grandson. I'm not allowed to see him. I'm concerned about the way he's being taken care of. Please check into him. And she kept nagging and nagging and nagging until finally a CPS investigation was open. Unfortunately, I think it was a little too late. But at least she tried. And I think that's what we see a lot of times with uh, these cases of child abuse. And we know this last year, we had a lot of like significant cases of child abuse, but it's, it's other family members who speak up and say like, hey, something's not right here. Something is happening that shouldn't be happening. And kids, a lot of times can't advocate for themselves. And it takes another older family member to advocate for them. And so, like you said, hats off to grandma with this. And you don't have to necessarily be a family member. There's always a thing. If you see something, say something. And it's an anonymous tip. You call the Texas Abuse Hotline, which is also the same number for elder abuse. It's the same number that you call and you report this. And by law, once you report that, they are obligated to check that tip. So I don't understand how sometimes these processes don't get completed. So it's just one of the many, I believe, failings of our foster care system and our state, you know, child welfare system, which we've seen over and over here in Texas. It's, It's not something that's ever been really well organized. I get that there's a lot of turnover and and with CPS workers, there's a lot of pressure to do this job. But we also have to realize these are children and they need to be taken care of. And they and if there's a report of abuse, I feel like it should never be ignored. 100%. You said it just right, right there. And like you said, you have an intimate knowledge of this being a mom of two beautiful kids that came out of the foster care system. So just a little more on Zavala and, and Priscilla Blasa. So I did reach out to Priscilla for an interview and mm-hmm. she denied uh, my request, but she's been eligible for parole since 2009. During her last parole review in August, 2021, which was just last year, she was granted parole with completion of a program prior to release. As of last check, she is still in that program and has not been released yet. But that's just to tell you that she will be coming out of jail soon. And I don't mean to just like throw this question at you, but like, do you know what this program is? Like the details of this program? You know, I didn't ask the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I just looked up the parole review board and it just tells you kind of like 
okay, it was granted, but pending completion of a program. So I'm assuming it may be some kind of like how to, you know, live outside of jail type of thing, how to get back acquainted to life outside of jail. I'm assuming, I don't know, um, that may be a possibility of a type of program, but considering that it was August that she was granted parole and we're now in June and she still, I mean, hasn't been officially released yet. I don't know how extensive of a program this is, or she's just not fully completing it the way she should be. Yeah. It makes me, I mean, this is just, again, just my opinion. It makes me feel like she's just dragging her feet, not actually committing to getting this program done is what it makes me think of, to be honest. Yeah. And as far as Zavala, he has been eligible for parole since 2015. He was recently denied parole this March due to the nature of his offense and his next parole review is in March, 2024. So what that kind of means is that they weren't going to grant him a parole just because of how bad this crime was. And they just felt, they didn't feel it, it was, it was time for him to get out. Um, for this crime, which I kind of agree with on the review board on this one. Yeah, definitely. And it it almost makes me think like, and I know uh, she pled guilty. He had to actually like go through trial or whatever, but it just makes me think like, are they putting more of the blame on Zabala, especially given his criminal history with his past with kidnapping, which when you told me that we were sitting in the newsroom, I was like, girl, what did he do? It blew my mind. You're like, oh, yeah, he's already facing charges for kidnapping another person. They played that during the punishment phase. I was like, wait, let me just hold on to my desk for a minute here. What? Yeah, like how similar were those like cases as far as details? Girl moves in with him with her child. You know, she has the strength to move up, to break up and move out. But then, you know, happens to meet up with him to discuss something about their breakup or whatever. And he just takes off with her kid and like, they friend, and leaves a voicemail. And she kept that voicemail. So they played that in court. Hats off to her for keeping that because I wouldn't I would have deleted. I would not, never want to listen to it ever again. But that is just wild. I think that just proves if you look at his history, who he is. Good job for the parole board for not granting him parole because he just proved to you with his past behavior, I'm not reformed. This is who I am. Yeah, and I'm kind of the type of person that just believes that once you've committed a crime like this and you've had a history of similar behavior, I don't honestly think it ever just goes away. Right. It's that age-old saying that if someone shows you their true colors, believe them. That's what he did before. That's what he did again. Let's believe it. Yeah. So yeah, this case was one that I know touched a lot of people here in San Antonio. I I think even the Heidi Search Center at the time when it was still around helped try to look for him in the landfill. It was just, you know, it was an impossible task. It wasn't until like November that they found out he was, you know, missing. And if this was in October, can you imagine just if you've ever looked at a landfill, it's literally looking for a needle in a haystack. Right. You have to hope that, I mean, the chances are slim now. That was back in 2001. We're in 2022 now. But you have to, especially for that grandma, you know, that she wants to be able to bury her grandson and just have a little bit of closure. And so you wish that someday that would just come out. But I just doubt that Zavala will have the heart to ever reveal that. And I don't know if Priscilla knows or not, but 
we just hope that they have the heart to say it so that family members who love this little boy and the community can finally just kind of lay that to rest. The, you would hope one day they could just be at peace. And I, I'm, I'm hoping they got that with this trial because they were both convicted, even though, you know, it's 2022 20, and there's still chances they can get out. I mean, Priscilla's already received her, you know, granted her parole. But as far as Zavala, it, it'll be interesting to see if he'll ever be let out. If not, when or how soon, um, only time will tell. But I, I do want to remind everybody that if you see something, say something, no matter how little or big it is, and, and call that Texas hotline abuse number. It's easy to find. Just Google it and it, it pops right up. And any way you can get some kind of exposure on a case where you think a child is being abused, I urge you to please call. Right. I have the, um, even just the national domestic violence hotline that pops up right away. I mean, Texas abuse hotline is 800-252-5400. Like you said, quick, easy Google. I searched it while you were talking. It's easy to find. We can link that in the story again, 800-252-5400. It's very easy just to to call, find that number and, and report something. Cause like you said, that could, that could help save someone's life. We want to thank you all for joining us this week. We'll have a, another episode for you next week of South Texas crime stories. <laughs>